We're not ready yet. Love Talk Radio. This is all about wine. Talk to to the wine industry since 2009. Featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically, what we're trying to do in this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From, From coast, coast to coast, coast and, around, and the around the world. You know, we really have had some, some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that. Post your questions and comments during the live show on our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinedtr. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash all about wine DTR. And now, all about wine is Here's Rob. Thank you, bus oh. people. Stop it too. Um, they're excited. It's nice weather and it's not raining right now. Yeah. Not yet. I haven't even no. checked tonight's radar. It's ridiculous before. Um, let me see if I can pull up the radar. Yeah. In the All About Wine Weather Radar Studio uh, for Florida. Let's see. Yeah, see, it's all, it's all like I'm right in the center of it, and it's moving away. Like Uh-oh. the stuff that comes from your state comes towards us, fizzles out, and then picks up on the other side. I don't know why. Well, you know, that's sort of like good. It doesn't interfere with yeah. electronics or anything. But yeah, especially that that hail that was. Did you see the oh. uh, photos from Melbourne? I think it was. Uh, yeah. Oh school? my gosh! Yeah. Yeah, it looked like it snowed out there. It was um, unbelievable the amount of hail they got. And you you, yeah. you have to think you know this this type of uh, well this time of year it's warm and to still get hail. Stones that large and uh, as they're coming yeah. down, it's just something. Yeah, so. it's it's not normal for us to get that kind of. Hey, no, they, just, they've been, and they they talked about it. They said, you know, well, we normally get the the quarter size or the pea size or something like that. But when you start seeing softball size and <laughs> that's a that's, that's reserved for up north. That's yeah, not yep. us. I mean, so. it's just that's strange weather in here. Um, let's yeah. see. I just pulled up radar here too while we were talking. Let's see what I've got. Ooh, well, I got some nasty stuff out in the Gulf heading this way. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's all around you. I can see that too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh well, keep it away from us. Yeah, yeah. We got we really got some wow big big storm front, but it's supposed to rain all day tomorrow, so that's probably are not yeah. tomorrow uh, half the night and into the morning, so that's the yeah. that's the storm coming at us right there. Ooh, that's nasty too. All sorts of red in the middle of it and everything. Mm. Uh, but glad I don't have anything to do tomorrow. Uh, oh, Emmeline's on the phone uh, on hold here. <laughs> we were sitting there talking about uh, the weather, and mm-hmm. I, I didn't notice her. Um, so, well, we do have a guest tonight, Emmeline Zale. I believe I'll have her pronounce it properly for me. Uh, she is the managing partner and sommelier of Silver a- Apricot, Apricot, 
in New York City, West uh, Village, and uh, she's going to tell us a whole bunch of stuff because she has had a, a very eventful life, and we'll find out all about it here in a moment. So welcome to All About Wine, Emmeline. Thank you so much. Um, it, your last name is pronounced what? Zhao. Zhao. You wow, got you got you got it pretty you got it pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, but uh, okay. Uh, very first. I think it's like a first because he's he's we're we're known for chopping names and and cities and everything up. So it's, and everything. I'm surprised. Yeah. Surprised we got close it's to okay. it. It's okay. It's okay. It's the effort that counts, right? There you go. Okay. That, that's not it. Yeah. Okay. Um, you have, like I just said, telling people, you have had quite an eventful life. Uh, uh, tell us about that. Tell us about, you know, where you were born and, and what all you did and everything to get up to this point. Oh, my God. Yeah. We only have an hour. <laughs> I know. That's I was looking at some stuff on on you, and it's just it's amazing what all you've done. Oh, you're very kind. I think yeah. I think it's all a product of being a little bit of a lost soul. So <laughs> that makes things interesting. <laughs> uh, but to answer your question, you know, I was I was born in Wisconsin. My family, oh. my parents uh, moved out of there before, you know, when I was a baby. So I don't really remember much of it. Um, moved to a few different other places before we landed in North Carolina, where my dad was a professor at Carolina. Oh, um, okay. spent a lot of my childhood hopping between uh, North Carolina and Shanghai, where my extended family is from. Oh, and so is your mom or dad? Uh, both my parents are from Shanghai. They oh, came. Oh, they came. Yeah, they came to the states in the eighties as um, as graduate students, and and stayed. Um, and so I had a lot of my, you know, my parents had their families back in Shanghai. So we spent a lot of summers there. I actually went to school there for a few years, which oh. is a very different thing, by the way. It's going, <laughs> it's, going to school in China is is no walk in the park. <laughs> you know, I mean, you hear stuff throughout your life about how tough they are and how strict they are and how competitive they are. Uh, and, and it's true then, I guess, huh? Oh, it is. It is very conditioning and formative. Let's just put it that way. Wow. Uh, so yeah, it was. It was definitely. It was definitely a um, an unusual experience for for a child. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when um, you were going to school there? I was there for a couple of years, just in preschool, and then a couple of years in elementary school. So I was there yeah. for second and third grades. Um, very kind of funny story about my defiant personality as a child was, you know, I, I went into the school in the second grade, but was not reading or writing at a second grade level in Chinese, um, because English mm -hmm. is my native, is my first language. And right. so the school wanted to send me back to the first grade. And I, I was, I remember being in the principal's office and I told my mom, not knowing that this was not a possibility, but I told my mom in front of the principal, if they don't keep me in the second grade, I'm going back to America. Um, just like that. Just like that. Didn't matter if it was 
possible or not. And <laughs> you were going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to put myself on a plane and survive as a child yeah. in the second grade in the states by myself. Yes. But the teacher, yeah. you know, was afraid, or the principal, I'm sorry, was afraid of losing the tuition money. So. <laughs> So she acquiesced and allowed me to stay in the second grade. And uh, I spent, it was hard. You know, I spent a lot of time catching up and mm. I ended, I actually ended second grade at the top of my class, oh, but um, from the very bottom. So, you know, it was one of those, I think, I I remember that very clearly because I think about who I am now and realize that as much as I am formed by my experiences, I, it also is very much a function of my personality from just by nature, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that was uh, that was something that was kind of wild as a kid, too. I, I, I lived with my, yeah, my teacher was my host mom. <laughs> oh, wow. What like who who is that crazy to just have no separation from their teacher? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, and uh, well, you know, this one falls into a whole new category there. You know. Yeah, big time. Um, yeah. And definitely, you know, being in restaurants was certainly not. You know, it wasn't something that I'd ever imagined doing, particularly for for a child of of immigrants. Um, so. Yeah, I uh finished I finished out the rest of school in, in North Carolina. Um being that my father was a professor at UNC, I don't know how much you guys know about or follow college basketball. Oh um, all the time. Okay, great. So fan. yeah, big time. Okay, perfect. So you know that I shouldn't have gone to Duke, but I did. And <laughs> that was a uh <laughs> Yeah, I I saw yeah, it's funny, I was reading uh reading your profile here on the, the Silver Apricot website and it was talking about Chapel Hill and, and then I saw Duke and I'm going did she really do that? <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> yeah. I did. That I did. Uh it was a big point of contention. My my parents <laughs> very much supported me on an academic and uh, and you know on that level, but uh when it came to sports March is not a month during which we speak. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And where's your loyalty lie? Still with, uh, well, who? Well, you can't you can't go to Duke and not be a Duke fan. It was uh, the, my freshman year was it was a period of transition to it, you know I will I will admit and put this on the record that my my bed my childhood bedroom in Chapel Hill is, is still painted Carolina blue uh, <laughs> and but you know my my blue devil peers also know that I'm a diehard duke fan now so I hope they can't hold that against me so I had mm-hmm. to, I did have to convert my freshman year um, it's hard not to convert, though, when you go through the tenting experience in Krzyzewskiville and uh-huh. just get captivated by that energy, and it's almost impossible to to shake and to not be a part of. So uh, I did become, yeah, I'm a diehard Duke fan. <laughs> okay, there you go. Well, you know, I think every, every college does that. You know, you, you get there and they just sort of like, this is what you are now, and this is what you identify with, and accept that and they continue to tell you that all the way through whatever college you're going to so when you get out 
you are a fan and an alumni that will continue to support the school. And I think that's what what it's all about there. So very much uh, so, yeah. They also they're great community builders. Yes, yeah, oh yeah, they are. Well, that's one good thing about the universities. People don't understand that uh, they really do a lot for the for the community that they're in. I mean, a tremendous amount of stuff in the communities they're in. Um, we're in Florida here. We got University of South Florida that's uh, down in Tampa, and they're involved in so many things in Tampa that it's just amazing. So yeah, I'm. I'm a fan of the schools that do that. So then you uh, graduated from Duke and went to Oxford, University of Oxford? I just did a term at Oxford, so it was during Uh, my undergraduate career, yeah. Okay. And so then you did what? Well, then I, um, I was a, I did a number of things. So I, I, Covered, um, so before, actually before I graduated, this is kind of really what jump-started my journalism career, was um, I was a reporter at the Olympics in Beijing in 2008. Oh, really? Um, I covered well, um, baseball and basketball. All right. Well, speaking um, fluent Chinese, that would work very well. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I think I actually used more of my Spanish than my Chinese while I was there. <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> Yeah, so the um, it was supposed to be the last year that baseball was going to be at the Olympics, and um, there was a whole issue with the Cuban team not being able to make it there. But none of the Cuban teams spoke English very well, and so they, they threw me in whenever Cuba was playing. And so I um, I actually think I might have used much more of my Spanish. Then. <laughs> but go. it was, you know, the language skills were certainly what, allowed me to to have that role, especially at such a young age. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a great experience. It was incredible. I met some really intelligent and just well-rounded people. It really makes you, it really makes you inspired by what people can, can do both with their mind and their bodies. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. So really inspiring. Um, and, then for a little while, I was um, an intern and a reporter for the Wall Street Journal, um, where I covered oh. economics. And uh, I think that is how I ended up in, I mean, I know, actually, that is how I ended up doing what I'm doing now, which is not economics. But uh, I was I was on the economics desk kind of as we were coming out of the recession, and we had pretty atrocious job numbers at the time. And I was deeply fascinated um, by, you know, in, in the States we have this, we have this mantra that, um, that education is, is the great lifter, right. Of, of, so there's the social mobility that is enabled by, by great, by higher education. Right. And so uh, I thought it was really interesting why the numbers were showing that these highly educated people were coming out of the out of the recession and still couldn't find jobs. Um, and you know what that means for our social beliefs that that education means social mobility, so and employment. So I kind of carved out this little niche of reporting for myself while I was there, looking at. Uh, what was happening with the highly educated and why they couldn't find jobs. And so in that 
space. Um, I guess I got the attention of those in, in education journalism. Um, so I was then recruited by the Huffington Post to lead their, um, their new education section. And so uh, I was really, I was just, I was enticed and, and curious about what that means. Um, becoming an editor in my early 20s was fascinating <laughs> to me. So, oh, yeah, no um, doubt. Yeah, so I, uh, I went over to the Huffington Post. I was there for a couple of years. And then I went over to Real Clear Politics, which was launching an education section as well. And so they hired me to launch Real Clear Education. Um, and from there, uh, was brought on to the 74, which is a national nonprofit news site covering education. Um, and I've been there now for um, seven or eight years. Uh, so oh. now, now my day job is to, I'm the director of multimedia and projects for the 74. Um, but while all of this was happening, it was kind of in my early 20s that I was really dissatisfied with with my life and my, what I was doing, I think. I think I needed to find other stimulation because I had been doing journalism for a very long time for a very young person. And mm -hmm. I wasn't sure if I was disenchanted by the work or if I was disenchanted by um, any number of things. I just kind of needed to do a little bit of self-discovery. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I had always loved restaurants. I had followed all of the celebrity chefs. I probably spent more time reading, um, you know, Grub Street and Eater and Bon Appetit <laughs> than I did reading the publications that I worked for. And so I said, you know, I need to, I need to find some outlet um, that is productive. That, and whether it means I need to switch over completely, I just need to do some exploration. So um, I found out that Wiley Dufresne was opening a new restaurant called Alder, um, so second to WD-50. And, you know, I applied. They were looking for a host, and so I, I sent in uh, an application. Uh, I wrote a cover letter and a resume, and in the cover letter I said something along the lines of, like, I don't have any experience, but I work hard and will learn things. And <laughs> I really want to do this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just let me, please take me. Yeah, and please. Shockingly, you know, shockingly, I got a call back, and I went into the interview, and I asked the general manager, uh, Siobhan, thank God for her, I asked her why she bothered to bring me in for an interview, and she said, well, you wrote a cover letter. <laughs> and and that it was so wild to me, right? Because I mean, now being on this side of restaurant hiring, I know how astonishing it is that there was a cover letter because that's yeah, not, you know, you just throw, you know, in restaurants, you just submit a resume and walk away and see what happens. And so, well, that's um, almost all businesses now, cover letters are really a thing of the past with resumes. I was taught to always submit a cover letter with your resume. But now, uh, if a resume is any more than one page long, they frown upon it uh, in in everything. And uh, I, like I say, the cover letter is always there to introduce yourself. And then you tell them, you know, just the basic info in the, in the resume itself. So 
a cover letter is, is, I would think, would be almost a necessity in some of that stuff. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, that's – we always say at Silver Apricot, you know, the way that we hire here is we want to find right cultural fits. And a resume is not going to tell me that. A resume is going to tell me what you can do but not who you are. And exactly. what's so important, I think, especially for small teams, um, it changes a little bit as, as you have a larger team or a larger company, but skills can be taught, but the people and their personalities cannot be. And so that's why I always feel like a cover letter just gives me a little, gives me a sense of who I'm dealing with. No. And that makes sense. You know, it's like I say, cover letters used to be standard, to, so you can learn a little bit about people. Now, uh, you know, it's not that I need to apply for, it, but I've talked to people on about resumes, and it's just so boring. <laughs> Look at a resume. <laughs> I had no idea that that cover letters are becoming relic of the past. They are. Oh, yeah, without question. It's just that people just don't sit down and tell about themselves. They just fill out the basic information. Resumes, to me, remind me of walking into a doctor's office and the doctor hands you the clipboard and says, here, fill this out. And that, to me, reminds me of resumes now. Here, just fill out these basic information here and you don't add anything to it to really tell about yourself. So, yeah. Oh, well, that's – and if I'm wrong, I'm sure somebody out there will inform me that I am wrong. But uh, I, <laughs> that's, what, that's what I've noticed lately, though. Cover letters are really a, a relic of gone-by days, I'm afraid to say. So, you got the job. Yeah, I got the job. And then I – I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it, but, you know, it was also a host role and it's kind of starting at the bottom when you're working when you're working at the front of house and then I worked my way through all of the different roles um as a runner, um serving and then that was kind of really where I started to care to learn about wine. I think that I always enjoyed drinking wine, but when I had to talk about it, um, it was it was really different, you know, just to like it versus being able to have a conversation about it. And I'm also the kind of person that I hate not knowing things. I hate being, <laughs> you know, I, and I'm always, I also like, I'm, I'm also always very upfront with when like things that I don't know, I'll say, I definitely don't know, but I can tell you what I do know. Um, uh-huh. But I think that that curiosity is what just kept feeding me through just absorbing so much more information about the wines that we were serving at Alder at the time. Um, And then I ended up at a cheese and wine cafe that is now closed, unfortunately, called Casa Lula. It had been around for a really long time in Hell's Kitchen Um, and really started to hone in on, on wine there. And, and cheeses. I was actually a fromager there, too, as, for a little while. So learned a lot about, about cheese, if anybody ever has any questions about cheese. <laughs> cheese, you know, you cheese. 
Uh, cheese it's is a, really, a, I mean, that's a lot to know about cheese. I just picked is. up different little pamphlets and books and all that and tried to educate myself a little bit because people, when I had the winery, people would say, well, what's a good cheese with this? And I'd go, uh, uh, yellow. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I, I try to do it. And boy, I'll tell you, you can, you can get yourself really quite submerged into the cheese knowledge. Oh, yeah. You can dive in the deep end and get completely lost. Yeah, but yeah. I always say, as with wine, when you're consuming, it's just, there's no wrong answer. At the end of the day, if you're having a good time and you're enjoying it, then it's all good. Yeah. So, um, yeah, then I, uh, I was there for a couple of years and started thinking about going to business school um, when uh, an old friend of mine from Wiley's Restaurant uh, called me up. Uh, her name was Simone. She's my, she's my chef partner now um, at Silver Apricot. But our wow. backstory, you know, we date back to um, – Chef Wiley's restaurants, and she called me up one day and said, "Hey, I am doing a pop-up to pressure test my concept for this restaurant that I want to open. Um, please come." And I said, "Great, I would love to come, but also let me know if you need help. I know pop-ups can be a lot of work." And she said, "No, no, no, no worries. I have a handle on it. Just buy a ticket and bring a friend. Have come and have fun." The day before the pop-up, she calls me again, and she says, so about your offer, <laughs> I need help. <laughs> Lots. Come come now. <laughs> so I showed up the next day uh, and basically helped run the pop-up. There were, you know, I think we did something like 100 covers, and, you know, there were just a few of us, and kind of the rest is history. We realized that we worked really well together and she brought me on um, to help manage and be a partner in the Little Tong Noodle Shops, which we opened three of until all three of them closed during the pandemic. But we had already started to work on a new concept called Silver Apricot. And that Mm. was supposed to open in March of 2020. Uh, I don't, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) For obvious reasons, there were some complications with that. But, you know, we had already worked on the space. We had already worked on the menu. We already had a team in place. And so, um, you know, I I don't have to go through or explain the devastation that every restaurant owner or manager had experienced when shutting things down at the height of COVID. Um, But we were fortunate in – yeah, it was – Oh my gosh, so many, so many tears and so many cries for help, and um, it was really sad. It was really, really sad. But we were in yeah. a fortunate position that we did have this other concept where we were able to move some of our previous team members over and keep them employed. Huh. Um, we did kind of drag out. Uh, we did drag out the closing of the little tongs because we were very fortunate to work with an organization uh, called Rethink Food which during the pandemic created uh, community kitchens in restaurants. And so through the support of a grant from Rethink Food, we kept many of our team on on payroll uh, producing hundreds of meals a day for 
first for frontline workers and for those in need. Oh, so, fantastic. Yeah, it was it was a really great way to be able to one make sure that we could preserve the livelihoods of those some of our staff and also be able to serve the community in a time of need. Yeah, um, that's great. Yeah, so we were then able to bring some of them over to Silver Apricot when we were finally able to open in in June of 2020. It was a totally wild ride. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And the original concept for Silver Apricot was supposed to be a Chinese-American fine dining concept. We were looking at a tasting menu, um, but when you, you know, during – a pandemic and a recession, it felt really tone deaf to do anything like that. So mm-hmm. we completely pivoted the concept to something a lot more casual, something that um, really served the neighborhood more than a fine dining establishment would as a destination spot. Mm. So we've iterated that concept many times since we opened, but um, we are now still a a la carte upscale casual spot. Um, We are new American Chinese focused, and with that have an all domestic wine and beer list and sake list, um, which is something that I think a lot of guests when they come for the first time are a little surprised by. I think they're so used to the classics and their old world wines um, that they come and they don't really get why we don't have Burgundy or <laughs> or Tuscan wines, you know. So, uh-huh. But it felt like it made sense with the through line of, of the story that we were telling at Silver Apricot of being, you know, American Chinese and um, the stories of immigrants that are that are doing their work here. How uh, – oh, a whole bunch of questions. Okay, first one, <laughs> <laughs> Zoltong Noodle Shop was in the East Village. I am not that familiar with New York City. Where is the East Village? The East Village is in like the, the lower eastern part of Manhattan. Oh, okay. uh, lower middle eastern, yeah, lower middle eastern part of Manhattan. Um, that was the first location of Little Tong. Okay, and then uh, the uh, Silver Apricot is in the West Village. That is where almost a straight shot west of the East Village. Okay, I just like I said, I'm not familiar with New York and you know the stuff like that. Now. When did are you a certified sommelier? I am. When Fortunately you... and unfortunately. <laughs> Why unfortunately? It's a pretty it's a pretty grueling process. I think you. It is. Oh yeah. Definitely lost a lot of hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, when did you uh, get your certification? When did you uh, do all that? I want to say it was 2019. I can't remember exactly, but I want to say it was 2018 or 2019. Yeah, so you you actually did it right before the pandemic hit us. Yes, it was before the pandemic. It was also shortly after Fred Dame had retired from the court. Um, so whenever that was, because that I remember this distinctly because I 
remember him retiring, and then I said, great, thank God. I, there's no chance that he's my he's going to be on the examination board because he just retired. And then he came out of retirement just to just to to be the um, be on the board of of that examination. think we lost Ron or I lost somebody. Uh, Ron, I'm are you there? Here. I hear you. Uh, okay. Can you guys hear me? Yes, I hear you. Do you hear me? Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think, I think Ron, we lost you if you're out there. Might try calling in. We've been having some severe weather and I don't know if that got him or not. Um, I see. But I know his part of Florida has been getting hit in the center part but uh so so okay i didn't catch the what was his name fred uh who was who was uh on the board yeah fred dame was one of the proctors of my exam um and that i was just trying to date i was trying to remember the date because i just remember it being shortly after he he announced that he was retiring from the court okay but it's, I don't know. I guess I just got the, the impression that it was a good thing that he was retiring from it, but he came back and that wasn't a good yeah. thing. I don't know. Well, okay. he's, 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 he's been known to be a tough cookie. So, okay. All right. All right. That's, that's about it. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, let me try this. I guess he, uh, he must've lost his uh, laptop too. Ron, are you there? I, no, no, I'm only on here. I'm not there at all. I don't know why I disappeared. Okay. I can hear you on your phone. I guess you called in on your phone, but I don't hear you the other way. Okay. Oh, yeah. you're live. Yeah, you're on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is, am I on? Can everybody yes. hear me? Yes. yes. Welcome back. Oh, okay. Yeah, I called in on my phone. My headset, well, it's showing no internet on my screen here, so. Excuse me. So I don't know what happened, uh, but yeah. good. I, at at least I'm there. The this finally shows my phone. Um, all right. Uh, Blog talk radio guys is nuts sometimes. That's what we get for live shows, you know. Uh, so we'll okay. <laughs> no, don't edit her. You asked a good question about him leaving and coming back. I was going to go into that too, and when, when uh, my you know, headset went beep, 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 and, and that was it. I didn't hear anybody, so, <laughs> you know, I don't know what happened there. Um, so, you you be you became a sommelier. Have you, well, of course, you put it into practice. The wines that you have at Silver Apricot, what are they? I, it, it is a, a diverse list of wines, and like you say, it's not the ones that you normally see when you walk in the restaurants or stuff. What, well, Multiple questions. Number one, why did you decide to do what you did? And two, what are the wines that you're having? And three, we've talked about sake on the show before. Obviously, you're knowledgeable in that, so we need to talk about sake also. So why did you decide to go the way you did? Yeah, it was, it was frankly, kind of an easy decision, Um when I conceived of it, I was a little nervous when I went to talk to Simone about it, but she said that she loved the idea. Um, and 
I decided to go that route because of the ethos of the restaurant and the food. You know, to celebrate Chinese-American cuisine as its own thing also meant that you're celebrating being American, being ethnic in America. And I think that there's so many wonderful things happening in the wine world in the U.S. that I think isn't being celebrated enough. Um, I think that there is a huge prestige and price tag that comes with a lot of the stuff from the old world, of which we don't even need to name today. They're pretty well known. Um, that, you know, whether whether it is, whether they are va- valid or not, doesn't really matter, right? But I think that a lot, and the more that you listen to, there are so many immigrant winemakers in, in the U.S. that oh, they yeah. often, it's, yeah, and they often have a, common thread of when you ask them why they came to the States to make wine rather than in their home countries, because many of them also come from winemaking regions. And they often say, well, it's because of the innovation and the, the creativity that is allowed to happen here. That isn't often, they're often not allowed or they're often not given that latitude in their home countries and and wine growing regions. So, it to me just feels like so much of this through line of an American dream, but from a different lens, right? Where mm-hmm. they're coming here to seek out a different type of opportunity and they're doing some really great things with it. And I think that like, they're, they're the ones that are really shaping how to rethink and to relook at wine. Um, so, you know, our list really features a lot of those um, wines that are coming from folks that are really just treating it differently and thinking about it a little differently. So your your wines are coming from, I'm, you know, winemakers that a lot of them are immigrants, but what regions of this country are, are you uh, oh, seeking that? We've got, we've got, everything um you know we have wines from you know the obvious ones like california um and you know new york new york finger lakes um but we also have wines from texas we have some blueberry wine from maine which is like super cool um we have wine from pennsylvania and new jersey um i'm looking forward to putting something on from North Carolina, but, you know, we haven't gotten there yet. So we really are, you know, and, and some, oh, we have some stuff from uh, Wisconsin and Minnesota. Um, And I think that when folks see that on a wine list, they're intimidated or they kind of shoot it down because, you know, there can't be good wine from Minnesota. What are you talking about? Um, They're like, what are, Jersey Shore wine? No way, right? Um, but when you start to really learn more about the ethos of these wines and why they exist, um, and you really learn about the stories behind them and you taste them, I think pe- people are often pleasantly surprised. Oh, I don't have any doubt that they are. I, uh, I've had wines from every state in the nation. When I had I had the winery, I asked people to bring a wine in from a different state, and I ended up collecting all 50 states, uh, plus some, you know, duplicates and some extras and all that. But it's just amazing the quality of wine that's being made in this country. And what 
so often happens is that, like Texas, all the wines they make are usually consumed in Texas because they can't keep up with the demand. And so it's hard to find Texas wines here in Florida or anywhere else. So I kudos to you for doing that. I think that's a great, great thing to do. Thank you. I I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I have yeah. all been I've been so pleasantly surprised, and frankly, we've been able to develop so many personal relationships with these winemakers um, because of this. You know, I think that we're all supporting each other. Many of them are very small production producers, so um, I think it's a really cool thing. Have there when you have your domestic wines? Were there any? Can you think of anything that really stood out to you? Uh, uh, Nevada, uh, and I'm sad to say that the company that produced it is no longer in business, but uh, I got a wine from, oh, I get a blank now, jeez, uh, no, I can't think of the name of it, but the, the winery closed down, but uh, that was uh, uh, great wine. I had a couple from from Nevada that are fantastic. Uh also, Arizona, the standard ones uh, in uh, uh, that you find that's uh, up in northern Arizona. But I visit a lot of wineries in southern Arizona that are phenomenal. Uh, they, the elevation, what really surprised me when I was heading to the wineries there, heading south of the wineries, we had driven past the immigrant check station. They have them on the roads there, and you got to show IDs and all this stuff. We had driven south of that, and then there was this enormous sign on the side of the road, Welcome to Wine Country. And you're going, what? I didn't turn to California. What is it? You know, it just <laughs> it seems so odd to see the sign. And there's a dozen wineries out there, and they're just phenomenal. They have great flavors, great taste. They they won't ship in the summer because it's just so bloody hot down there, but they have some phenomenal wines in southern Arizona. Um, and uh, I've had uh, had some wines in Minnesota and Wisconsin. I always put out some good cold weather wines that are uh, rather unique. Uh, the uh, uh, Some wineries in Missouri, too, that are really, really quite good. They uh, uh, and, and people, when you start thinking about these different places, people start thinking about muscadine. But uh, all these places are growing, you know, vinifera grapes that uh, are are thriving and doing a great job there, and they're doing a great job of making the wine from them. So, just those those particular states, I just found that jump out in my mind. So. Uh, and to think of wineries, I'd have to search my brain a little bit here because, some, you know, if I don't think about it every day, I tend to forget. <laughs> so, uh, and that's going to drive me nuts now about that one in, there, uh, in uh, Nevada that I like. Uh, Pahrump, Pahrump Winery uh, was very good. They, they have closed down since then, I'm sad to say, but uh, they put out a Cabernet Sauvignon that uh, – or no, it was a Zimindal, a Zimindal, one of the first Zimindals in the state of Nevada. And they did a phenomenal job on that. I was so impressed with it. Um, but, you know, I can keep saying it's sad to say they close. But uh, 
I, I think it's fantastic that you're getting wine from these little known regions and, and little known wineries and winemakers. It's, it's something that I would love to see happen all over the country. And you have a great place to do that there in New York. I think that's fantastic. Thank you. I do have to. I also have to correct myself. We do have I, because it's so new. I forgot. We just started to carry North Carolina North Carolina wine. So <laughs> out of Asheville, North Carolina. So um, yeah, it is. You know, it is really fun. And I I agree with you. Um, what's really cool too uh, is that some of these lesser known wine regions have winemakers are, that are doing things with with Grape varietals that are probably lesser known or definitely lesser known and less utilized. Um, so, you know, there's a maker, um, Kamuna Cellars, which is based in um, in Philly, is using grapes from Jersey and, like, Pennsylvania and really searching for things that are really searching for things that are local and not just, I think, their their DNA is, that, you know, we're not going to try to just plant vinifera for sake of planting vinifera. You know, mm-hmm. the the thought is, what if what if we actually created the wine culture in the States much like it is in, in Europe, for example, where wine is just like your agricultural beverage. Um, it's not this luxury good that is touted because of, you know, what, what it's made from. So they're really looking at, like, localization and what actually grows well where they are um, and making wines from that. And I think that's – it's just – it's so cool, and it's um, so of the moment. Yeah, that is is fantastic. And so many places around the country, I'm sure you're well aware of, has wine shipped from California. And it's uh, – and they say, oh, I've got this here and I've got this here, and then you start looking at it and say, well, this – Juices from California, you, you know, what's what are you doing locally? And there's so many local grapes in areas that are just unique, and they, they taste uh, well. I, <laughs> people search for the what they're used to: the Cabs, Merlots, the Chardonnays, the Riesling. And if it's not those, then they immediately have an attitude about the wine. And it's really sad because, like you say, they're doing so much with the wines that are not from uh, California or not the vinifera style that they're uh, putting together some very, very good wines in areas that you wouldn't expect. So, yeah, I just, I, I've talked about this a lot of times on the show about, you know, try your local wines, try something new. And it's good that you're doing it. it the wines that you are serving in the restaurant, telling the story when you serve them, are you explaining to the people that these are from small wineries from such and such a place and this is what it's all about? We do when they're willing to listen, but not everybody's here for a conversation. That's true. Yeah. Well, when they come in to eat, I, you know, some people just want to eat. Now, do you, uh, you find that you're, Domestic wines, say from Wisconsin, are matching well with Chinese foods. They're doing great, and um, yeah, they're they're really really cool. Um, and you know, for what it's worth, you know, our our food is modern, you know, Chinese American. So I think that uh, when when folks think about uh, Chinese American food, they think of 
Chinese takeout, you know, um, like right. Panda Express. But mm-hmm. what we're doing is a lot of stuff that's, you know, either inspired by that or, you know, the whole story of being Chinese in America is a lot of, you know, when I was growing up in, in North Carolina, for example, um, my parents, you know, they, they knew how to cook how they knew how to cook, right, which was Chinese. Right. But uh, now, I mean, now you have access to so many things, but then you didn't, right? And so where were we getting our produce and where were we getting our proteins from? It was going to be like the local farmer's market and the local butcher. And the mm-hmm. farmer's market in North Carolina doesn't have bok choy or Chinese broccoli. You know, they're, <laughs> they're, carrying, <laughs> they're carrying collars and okra. So uh-huh. it was it was this whole exploration of new ingredients, but cooking them the way that they knew how to cook. Uh-huh. And so that's kind of a lot of what we're doing at Silver Apricot is to and you know they weren't alone, obviously, right? There was a whole generation of these of these immigrants that were cooking this way here. Um, and I know that this story is not unique to the Chinese American experience. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's very common across other. Um, other nationalities and ethnicities as well. So um, when I think that, you know, a lot of folks probably confuse us or they like to say that we're quote-unquote fusion. Um, but to me, fusion mm-hmm. is a lot is a lot more of an intentional mishmashing of two or three types of cuisines, whereas I find that what we're doing is a lot more of an organic approach. Um, where it really does come from just being in a place and using those ingredients that you have access to, but cooking them in a in the way that you know how. Very good. Yes, a good explanation of that, and I, I like that. It's, uh, I mean, if you don't have the ingredients, you're gonna have to use what you have there. So you just think. Actually, it's almost like creating a new style of food itself, new prep style itself, because you don't have the ingredients you used to, but you're still doing the same basic thing. So, yeah, very good. That uh, sounds like it would be a, a great menu. How many uh, – well, do you serve a la carte? I think I read somewhere where the, the menu is a la carte. Yeah, we are all a la carte. Um, we have, like, a family-style option that is a set menu if if folks come with larger parties. And, you know, in, in Chinese culture, you everything is family-style, right? So that's an opportunity oh. to get a little immersive if that's the way that folks want to go. Oh, okay. Now, off the subject of food for a second, <laughs> and, and I don't know if you know, if you're knowledgeable or not, but the Chinese wine market, it seems to be exploding now, and they're getting wines from all over the world, plus the, everything that they're producing and you know all that. Do you have any knowledge of the Chinese wine market? I have rudimentary knowledge of the Chinese wine market. Um, I, you know, they are. There's a lot of there's a lot of wealth. There's a lot of luxury in China right now, and. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're also they're also becoming a lot more knowledgeable as wine buyers. I think that the the wine buyer in China right now is very different from the wine buyer in China 10, 20 years ago for sure. Um, they're also they're certainly bringing in a a larger number of of boutique wines, um, mm. and I definitely know of some 
winemakers that are actually being distributed, like smaller production winemakers that are being distributed in China right now. So I, I definitely think that the average Chinese winemaker is, or sorry, the average Chinese wine buyer is is a lot more discerning and dynamic than it was a couple of decades ago when when I think that they knew a lot about the luxury wines and the big box stuff. Now I now I think there are so many you know the it's there's a much there's a much larger scale graduating scale of the kind of person that's buying wine there now. It's also a much more global economy, and I think that um, they're experiencing more and seeing more of both the world and the and the wines that are in the world. Um, so I definitely think that there there's some really intelligent and but also powerful buyers. Mm, yeah, so, you know, there's a lot more of a disposable income, and so therefore the higher end wines are being purchased. The reason I, I, I was asking, I uh, uh, we had guests on the show. Uh, uh, we had a cigar show, and the guys were, you know, all cigar bloggers and stuff, and they knew a lot about cigars. And I continued to correspond with them and talk with them and all that. And last night we were talking about how cigars have taken over in China, how there's so many cigars being imported to China from Cuba and Dominican Republic and all that. And the uh, general consensus was, Basically, from the guys, is about the same thing you said. You know, a new, new, new money, new discerning palates and cigars and stuff, and it's really taken off. And, and I made the, uh, you know, the parallel to wine, and I just wanted to wondered if I was wrong. Obviously, I wasn't because from what you just said, this is what is happening over there, not just with wine, but with cigars. And I think a lot of other higher end stuff is is affecting China markets and regions. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean I'm just I'm just jealous. What what would it be like to be able to buy wine without a budget? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that would make me jealous. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's very true. Um I had another question one. Slip, maybe Mike. Mike, do you have any questions or, or comments uh, in line? Uh, not at this time. I'm I'm good. Thank you. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. I haven't. Um, I was hoping you'd ask something because I was trying to think of what I was going to ask and I lost it. Then when I was talking about China. Uh, oh, oh, oh! I remember. Uh, sake. You yeah. serve sake. We okay. do serve sake. Uh, sake. Yes. Is that is it sake? Okay. Well, I've been saying it wrong my whole life. Uh, <laughs> uh, is your sake from uh, Japan, China, uh, or is it domestic? Domestic as well. Is it? And okay. we, uh, you know, there's a there's a sake brewer in Brooklyn uh, called Brooklyn Kura. And they are doing some really great things um, just, you know, not just down the street from us, kind of. So we, we really feature them um, pretty prominently on our, on our sake list. Oh, that's, that's interesting. I didn't know there was a sake brewer in Brooklyn. Uh, 
how many different types of sake and uh, sake are you uh, on your menu? We have currently we have four four different. I mean, forgive me for using a, a wine term for this, but four what we they would call cuvées, right? So uh, mm-hmm. there's so many other different types and varieties of it. You know, but right, right now everything is coming from Brooklyn Cora. Um, there is a, there's also a there's also a sake brewer in Asheville, North Carolina. We haven't been able to get them by distribution, but they're really great. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there were actually some down in Florida and Texas or something like that along the Gulf as well. Yeah, there's uh, I think one in Florida. Since you mentioned it, and I, I can't remember the name or, or where. There is definitely one in Texas. I think. Uh, also, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, I, I can't remember exactly where. Well, uh, but yeah, they're popping up all over. Uh, Sake brewers are just speckled throughout the country, I think, uh, because it's becoming more and more popular. And definitely market, I am a fan myself. I actually have four or five bottles sitting on my wine rack here of sake. No. Oh, I love that. Uh, I'm sorry. I said I, I love that. Yeah, yeah. It's just, just as much part of my uh, wine rack as you know anything else. Sake is right there with it. So, uh, not something that I usually look as a meal type drink. Which I don't know. Am I wrong? You, you serve it after the meal or during the meal or what? I don't think there's any wrong answer. <laughs> you know, I feel <laughs> it's if you're enjoying it, enjoy it however you like to have it. You know, I I personally don't really drink sake alone, um, but that's just a personal preference. You know, I love acidity in my beverages, and so mm. to me, to me, sake alone doesn't have enough perceivable acidity, and so that's why I love I love it with food. Um, uh-huh. To create that like perfect, well-rounded uh, palette, I guess. Um, but there's also like I think sake is great for it's great as an aperitif. It's great with a meal. It's great with dessert. You know, you can have it however you like to have it. Yeah, I usually have it before. I usually have it uh, just an aperitif, and uh, it, it tends to uh, sharpen the palate. Uh, for the meal, and so that's usually why I do have the sake before. Um, but I'll have to try it with the meal. I, I just never have, and not for any particular reason. Just I've always thought that it might uh, screw the flavors of the meal too much, or even the sake. So I have to go back and give it a try now. You definitely should. Um, yeah, it's interesting because sake has, you know, because it is made from from rice and yeast um, and water, it has a lot less of that perceivable perceivable acid that we know so well as acid. Um, right. But it has a different type of act. It has a different type of acid, which is the same one that is responsible for the sensation, the umami sensation. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, and also the lactic acid produced from from that fermentation gives it that creaminess and texture um so to me like a great sake is almost like a is almost like a great dirty martini you know that has like salinity oh. viscosity floral qualities and a little bit of a little bit of sweetness Good so comparison yeah. 
Yeah, so, you know, I, I think that it pairs well with things that are that tend to have higher, um, that has higher perceivable acidity. <clears throat> and for things that, like, and with things that are very, like, umami-rich. Mm-hmm. Well, good comparison. I will have to start searching out that thing instead of just using it for my expertise. But I think you should, you, should give, uh, you should give it a shot with some grilled cheese and tomato soup. Okay, I, I will make a note of that, and definitely, definitely goat cheese and tomato soup. Grill, grilled cheese, grilled cheese and tomato oh, soup. Oh, grilled cheese and tomato soup. Well, grilled cheese and tomato soup is always good. I, you know, I, I'm not one to dip my grilled cheese into the tomato soup like so many are so inclined. I just ooh, but <laughs> uh, I will have to try my try that sake grilled cheese and tomato soup. That sounds like. It sounds like that would be good. Yeah, and the acid and the tomatoes and all that. Well, there you go. So I will I will give that a try. Well, Emmeline, any any last thoughts or comments or anything? And also, give us some information, uh, contact information for the Silver Apricot in case anyone wants to uh, get in touch or stop by or if they need reservations or your uh, Facebook and all that other good stuff. Yeah, of course. Our website is silveropricot.nyc. Um, all of our contact information and menu and availability is all there. Um, and we're on Instagram, so follow us on Instagram. It's silveropricotnyc. NYC. That's that's a new one to me. I don't think I've heard that. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I mean, it's New York City. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to visit with us today and this evening. It was really a pleasure. Learned a lot. And, yeah, best of wishes to uh, Silver Apricot and to you in your future adventures. And maybe someday in the future we can get you back on and see how things are going then and see what's happening uh, with the uh, restaurant business at that time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And let me know if you're ever in New York. Oh, I will definitely plan on doing a stop there on the, on the west side now that I know where it is. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Please do. Okay. And thank you for your time. And uh, have a good evening. Good evening. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Yeah. Ah. All right. Okay. Well, there you go. my stinking connection broke yeah. off on me. All of a sudden. Yeah, yeah it yeah. did. I was sitting here, and I'm. she's talking, and I'm going, <laughs> can you hear me? Mike? Am yeah. I? Anybody? And nothing. It just, so it just got I, quiet, and we were both sitting here like, uh, okay. That's when <laughs> I decided to yell out. Didn't hear anything, <laughs> and I go, uh-oh. We are. I don't know if you could hear <laughs> what she was saying. But, uh, yeah, you were gone. Okay. Yeah, I was gone, and not you know, and, and you you did a good job of picking that up uh, about hmm. the, uh, the the sommelier and uh, doing that. Yeah, that was just going to be my next question anyway. I heard her say that, and that's when I lost it. So uh, yeah. he's good. Then I just and then I grabbed the phone, and I called in, and I'm going, oh no, I'm I, it's it's not connecting, you know, on the show. And then she said, yeah, we can hear you. So you know, good. Uh, <laughs> ah, yeah. When they ask me to vote how this went tonight, I'll give them a bad rating, you know. 
But it says right. no internet. I don't know why that says that. That's just hmm. that's just crazy. On your laptop, uh, interesting. Maybe yeah. you lost the connection or something. I don't know. So I don't just, know. Uh, well, I just hmm. you know, I I went over here to something else and I clicked on it and it's coming up. So it's not like it disappeared. Hmm. I mean, it's still got internet here. Castle Ridge one, you hear this old thing from them that popped up. Hmm. Uh, hmm. I don't know why it's saying it lost the internet. Uh, yeah. let's, you know, mm-hmm. let's go back to blog talk. Yeah, it says no internet on on the screen. It's you know our our main screen on the wow. uh, studio. It just shows hmm. no internet. But oh. yet we're still talking and didn't connect us so. And I'm the host, so it, if we have no internet, it would have disconnected us. So. Yeah, you would oh. have been disconnected as a host. So, no. yeah. oh, oh well. So, uh, uh, interesting, interesting life for a young lady. She's in her mid thirties. We found, and oh my gosh, she's really, really very uh, many accomplishments. Yes, to, uh, and inspiration for people who say, oh, what am I going to do? Well, she just jumped in and did it, so yeah. uh, that's a good thing. Before we go, we have to uh, promote Flightline Radio, oh. <laughs> Mike's, Mike's uh, radio show, uh, radio program, radio format. What do, what do we call it? Uh, it's just... Uh, Doing what I do, music. Uh, I did some music. Yeah, I don't know. Music news last time I did some on that. I was thinking on making up stories about uh, oh, yeah. different songs or groups. I, I don't know. Just throw like okay, a little. I mean, at the end of it didn't just at the end of it say, "Oh, it's all made up." I just made it up. Little, but uh, snippets, snippets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, it's just a just a show. Uh, take requests and play music and give some information out and whatever. But uh, yeah, and he's going he good talks. Mike yeah. talks here. He talks, and it's he's live Friday evening from seven to nine. You said you were looking at changing that uh, live time. Nope. Are you going to? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> okay. Not to put so you on the spot, okay. but you mentioned uh, that you so were far. looking at changing. <laughs> yeah, so far it's working out. It's it's been okay, but I don't know. I might. Uh, I might try and change a day or, or or add another show just to mix things up a little oh, bit. But, well, there you go. That yeah. would be cool. But right Have now, live on Lifetime Radio, 7 to 9, <laughs> Friday evenings, Mike is on the air. And then you can listen to Flightline Radio anytime because it's 24-hour streaming. So you can tune yeah. in and listen to it at any time. But if you have any special requests or a song that you haven't heard and like, oh, my gosh, I haven't heard that so long. I want to hear it. You can't find it. My castle. You'll, you'll find it somewhere for you. So, yeah, yeah be sure to tune in on him. And uh, uh, tomorrow night, 7 to 9 yep. on Flight Line Radio. So. And don't forget Ron's uh, extra gig, uh, the cigar – what do they call it? Cigar shows? Cigar uh, people sitting around with the, the Yeah, we, we just sit around and talk. Oh. Well, just any of the cigar guys. That, uh, Craig, Cigar yeah. Craig, does snippets from our conversation and puts oh. it on uh, uh, a podcast. or I don't know exactly what he does with it, but he'll uh, mm. 
yep. edit okay. it and, and put it on. So uh, uh, that's always cool. good. But you can always, you know, get a, you know, listen to the cigar guys. Uh, they all have their thing going for them. So yeah, uh, we'll you know, do that. Give them some yeah. shout outs. Uh, wow, we are eight minutes behind eight. on the oh my feed. Yeah, there's no way I'm waiting for that. As soon as, as soon as the video's done, I'm done. Uh, but, yeah, uh, it's probably just in the, showing eight o'clock uh, is all. Oh my gosh! Uh, it is, yeah, eight eight, turning to eight oh one now. Uh, but oh I think in gosh. the future, maybe we should give a shout out to Craig and um, obviously Cap uh, Cap He's been on the show uh, five times, four times, three times, four or five. Did he get yeah. into yeah. three, four? Yeah, being yeah. Not yet. Um, I, I think he's uh, tied right now. Um, okay. And then uh, we got Phil Phil Switch. Tune into that. Okay. Phil Switch is just uh, cigars and laughter and music and a little bit of comedy. And then wow. Mike Weinstein is the review cigars almost daily on Cap's hmm. Facebook page. So tune into Cap's Facebook page and Mike reviews okay. cigars. So they're all you know quite quite in cigars. It was interesting. Like I was telling Emily last night, uh, we were talking about cigars and. And uh, I think it was Craig that mentioned something about how China is starting to just get as many Cuban cigars shipped over there as they possibly can. They're just, they've got this mm. idle money that they don't know what to do with. And, you know, the reputation <laughs> of Cuban cigars is uh, bringing it in. And, and same thing with some other regions, you know, Nicaragua and Dominican Republic. I mentioned that wine yeah. was that way over there. And Emmeline actually confirmed that. Uh, in her comments there, so but uh, yeah. big market over in China for all that stuff, you know. So, yeah. so uh, nice. Um, all right. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, uh, follow Kaplowitz Media at Kaplowitz dot x y z. That's K A P L O W I T Z. Kaplowitz. Kaplowitz. L O I T Z. Yeah. Dot x y z. Check it out. And, uh, and oh, the show. before we get off, too, uh, yep. let's see. Yeah, I'll be here next week. I, I'm going to go. I think I'm going to be flying up to Atlanta to see my grandson's uh, uh, first communion. Uh, I guess that's what it is. But that won't be until the, the morning after. It'll probably be the uh, morning after the show. So I'll be here next week. I think we have a guest next week, too. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I'm pre- pretty sure we do. I, I'm sitting here in the dark, and I can't can't see my calendar anyway. So, uh, but, yeah, check the uh, information page, and uh, Mike will post our guest for next week. I think this is from Southern, Southern Wine and Spirits. Well, I'm sitting here talking. I'm going to have to look it up. So, yeah, find uh, it, and we'll, we'll post it yeah. when you at some point, we'll let them know. Let me, uh, three, let me look right seven, now and be sure. Let's see, February, March, April, May the 4th. May, May the be with you. Uh, May the 4th. No, Eric's not going to be on until the 18th, so my mistake. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The 18th, okay. he's going to be on. So the 4th, we don't have a guest. So you, you can all tune in anyway, but we don't have a guest. And if Kath listening to this, Kath will say, I want to break my record. And 
<laughs> but uh, tune in next next week. We'll be here and have the information on the wine and everything. So um, have be a good out there. Yeah. And enjoy your uh, your intro to May coming up uh, next week. So thank you. And and right. Be safe. And, uh, yeah. Be safe. Want y'all back? May Day coming up too. So. Yeah. Uh, have a good night. We'll be up. Yep. Thanks for listening. This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine with your host, One. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwine.com. Archived shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash all about wine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine. All About Wine. There we go. And off of there. And there we go. I am ending. All right. How far are you behind on Facebook now? I signed off. I turned the video there off. Go. There you go. It was eight That's minutes. Yeah, it was eight minutes. Um, but what was interesting? We were just chit chatting anyway. Let me drag you over to. Uh, let me drag you over. Let me just turn this off. I'll drag yeah. you over to the yeah, green room. Control it. Oh, I can control it. Oh, oh, you. Uh oh. There was a problem. I wonder if we can't. Yeah, we can't.